This is Mike Tyson, wishing you a happy new year to everybody out there in the Crucial Conversation family. I don't know what that was, but anyway, happy new year from the Crucial Conversation family. We got an episode to get to today, but before we do that, let's talk about a little bit of some sponsors that we got going on. My favorite sponsor that we have is the one that we've had from the very get-go, and that is Lazari Italian Oven. Brian, have you ever been so hungry that you don't care where you go, and then you go and you're like, man, I wish I cared a little bit more? Well, guess what? Caring is the name of the game at Lazari Italian Oven. Go by and see them. Tell them that Brian and Tony from The Conversation sent you. Enjoy a nice, sit-down, family-style Italian meal. You don't want to miss out on what they got going on. You can call them at 870-931-4700. Like I said, tell them Brian and Tony sent you. Is there anybody out there that's surprised, not surprised, or is surprised? I don't even know what the right expression is. I'm just going to say it like this. I'm not shocked that Tony's favorite sponsor is the food sponsor. That's all I'm trying to say. <laughs> that's what I'm trying to get to. I am not surprised. I got to tell you something. I've been having some, some... I'm eating right now. Yeah, he's eating sunflower seeds right now. He doesn't even care. He's a savage. <laughs> it, it, right now, it is pretty cold outside. We have, or we're about to travel starting this week go into some pretty cold places and one thing I, I hope is the places we're staying have some air that's working Don't you mean and some heat heat, heat and air it, it's synonymous terms in my book but anyway so if you need your heat worked on or you need your air worked on if you're listening to this in the summertime or whatever you need to get a hold of nat anderson at anderson heat and air the number to contact nat is at 870-664-1967 we were over at uh, nat's house a few weeks ago watching a football game and that heat worked real good let me tell you it was real good we were over there sweating and we were looking at him like nat does your air air not work and he was like of course my air works and you know what he switched it over and the air did work because he knows what he's doing again you call nat anderson at 870-664-1967 all right, another one of my favorite sponsors that doesn't have anything to do with food is Live Oak Realty. Dustin over at Live Oak can take care of you. It doesn't matter if you're looking to buy, looking to sell, looking to rent. He can take care of you. Give him a call at 870-520-2522 or go with a list with liveoak.com. If you haven't been to the driftedrumcompany.com yet, you need to go over there. Right whenever you first click on the the website of the Drifted Drum Company, the first thing you're going to see is the advertisement for the book No Mess, No Message by Dr. April Jones. You need to go ahead and get that book because you want that to be in your library. It's a book that's going to help you find struggle and peace through all the pains that you go through because the point of the the book is that through all of our mess, there is a message in it. And our final sponsor for this first week of uh, January 2020 is Jonesboro Cycle and ATV. One of my New Year's resolutions was to put a smile back on my face, and I can't think of a better way than having a good time on that off-road experience with my friends, diving through the woods, going in the water. It doesn't matter what I want to do. They've got a vehicle that can make it happen. Go to jonesborocycle.com and find out what you want. Go ahead and put promo code CRUCIAL, get 10% off your entire order, and uh, they'll hook you up. I want to give a quick shout-out to Tony for helping with the crucial conversation making the crucial conversation what it is he puts in a lot of time getting these ads put on the videos getting people books because you guys know i don't book nobody tony does it all 
uh, I, I got to give a shout out to him because this last year has been incredible and what the Crucial Conversation has meant to me. I got to give a big shout out to me for bringing the best <laughs> of the content between the two of us. I got to oh. give a shout out to all of our guests. I want to give a big shout out to Mike Tyson for doing the introduction to this episode. <laughs> and I've got to say to the, the guest of this particular episode, Brother Dennis Anderson, this one messed with me. And, and I'm looking forward to, uh, as soon as this thing hits the internet, going back and re-listening, because uh, he really ministered to me. Guys, thanks for tuning in, and this is, truly is a crucial conversation. And you cannot be consumed. I kind of feel the Holy Ghost in here about right now. You cannot get so consumed with the 2% that you destroy the 98% that God's trying to do for you. Focus on the 98% and enjoy a good bag of popcorn. Because I did a little research. It consumed me so much that I wanted everything to pop. I did a little bit of research. You know why popcorn doesn't pop? It has no moisture in the heart. Hey guys, this is Brian and I'm Tony and you're listening to the Crucial Conversation podcast. We have a guest with us here today that I am super excited to have. Um, When I decided to transition to Arkansas from Illinois, I knew nobody but the folks at our local assembly. And I kind of felt a little out of place, and, you know, I, I, I did the compare game. Um, Illinois was home to me. Brent Coltharp was the superintendent, and he was my youth president, and he's somebody I grew up underneath, so nobody would ever compare to him. And uh, we came down and went to my first Arkansas district event was Arkansas Men's Conference. And Brother Dennis Anderson, that's where I met you for the first time, and you came up with me in only a way that you could, and you wrapped your arms around me and said, Welcome, son. And it's things like that that a person like me can appreciate. Brother Anderson, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to come down and sit and talk with Brian and I. This is the second time we've tried to get you on the podcast, but we're finally glad that you're able to sit down and talk with us this afternoon. Well, it's my honor, Tony, and um, I want to say what a what a wonderful introduction that was because um, that just really is fulfilling because I do understand that everybody wants to, to feel uh, welcome and uh, like they matter. And it wasn't flattery. It's was really the way we feel about it. Yeah. And we felt about things in Arkansas, still do. Yeah. And um, it's, uh, we understand that you're getting into a new, new world when you get here and all those kinds of things, and you kind of feel like, you're out of place, but you're really not. It's just yeah. joining the family. So well, thank you very much. That's the very first kind. time I actually heard you preach was at that men's okay. conference. And I said that you wrapped your arms around me like a, only a way that you could. You also preach in a way that only you can. <laughs> I think you're the only man in the United Pentecostal Church that can take two steps and get across the entire platform. <laughs> <laughs> this dude here, Brian, has the longest legs of anybody. the tallest guest we've had. Yes, and I'm just glad that your boom stand is able to reach up to you up there. <laughs> But we are so excited to have you with us. Uh, we want to talk about a broad range of things. Um, Can I butt in there and just tell you that uh, the other night someone was in the back of the church and there was a short fellow telling 
somebody or something, and they said, um, he's back here telling tall tales. And I said, no, sir. I said, if I tell you it's a tall tale, he's, tell, he's, <laughs> he's telling, telling you a tale. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I just knew you had to have that. Uh, yes, that yeah, I will make sure that's your intro. <laughs> okay. Welcome, everyone, to the Corny Conversation. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But, Brother Anderson, like I said, we want to get through a broad range of topics. Let's start at the very beginning. Um, I actually had a minister today tell uh, – we told them that we were going to be sitting down talking with you, and he said, I really want to hear about – um, the heritage and the legacy that the Andersons lead, because in Arkansas it's the Andersons, just like as in Texas it's the Kilgores, Louisiana the Mangans. Mangans, yeah. So you are very deeply rooted in this. Tell us a little bit how all that began. Was your family one in the revival at Big Flat? Uh, my dad actually was the one that organized the church in Round Mountain, is is Round the place called, mm-hmm. and that's the place where. Uh, I don't. I don't have an exact number of how many uh, pr- preachers, specifically pastors, have come out of that church. But you had people like T.G. Ramsey, uh, Jerry Mize, Brandon Mize, Gary Anderson, Harold Anderson, um, and it, the list just goes. You got Greg Downs, um, uh, Paul Mize. That's in. And I'm I'm listing a whole bunch of those, but that's just off the top of my head, right? Quick, just to tell you uh, immediately what came out of that little country church and. Um, it used to be a situation where you might have a Trinitarian preaching one week and then a, a one, oneness preacher preaching the next week, and it was my dad that actually took the initiative uh, and said, look, folks, we need to decide what we believe, and then we need to narrow this thing down because we're tearing down everything that we're building up from week to week. So anyway, he read up on how to incorporate a church, and so he got the church incorporated independently in Round Mountain, Arkansas. When I was about 15, my dad saw the need for organization. And so when he saw the need for organization, uh, he joined the United Pentecostal Church. And when he got his license, of course, as is the case in, in unique situations, they saw that dad had a whole lot of background. He was quite a, uh, uh, very studious in Scripture, and, and uh, some of them call him theologian probably. But uh, dad actually was ordained the first time he ever met the board. So it was uh, from there a springboard of what then uh, produced a whole lot of people uh, pastoring uh, United Pentecostal churches across the state of Arkansas. Sure. So that kind of gave us a little inroads, and so that that worked out uh, pretty good for us getting launched, if you will. Uh, I've got to ask because you said a statement there that stood out to me. The, how your dad said you have we, we are tearing down everything that we're building up so we have to decide what we're going to do in your years of and i know this is jumping from the your family story to kind of everywhere you've been in all your years of leadership and and district leadership have you ever had to say a similar thing like your dad said of guys we've got to if we don't make up our minds on what we're doing here that we're going to tear down what we've built up and so you had to incorporate that organization into your meetings, and if and in doing so, how did you bring that stability of organization? Okay, uh, what happens a lot of times is, and matter of fact, it's covered actually in the manual of the United Pentecostal Church uh, that we would not contend for our differing views to the disunity of the body. And so, what happens is there's latitude within the organization for you to have disagreement. But when, it's, when the final analysis is said, we have to stick with what is scriptural. And then, uh, for instance, some of the 
heritage of the Arkansas district was that many, many years ago there was a big um, debate on whether to build the cafeteria building that we have now. And so they were fighting back and forth whether they were going to do that or not. And, of course, that's not doctrinal, but it was uh, it could have been very divisive. Sure. And if you if you get the mindset that if I don't agree with this, I'll take my marbles and go home. And so um, they had had such a hot disagreement, and um, they were just really in each other's face about, we don't need a new cafeteria, we're wasting money and all that kind of stuff. So, all right, uh, district superintendent said, we're going we're gonna to have a vote. So they had a vote. And they voted then to go ahead and build a cafeteria after all this hot discussion. What is unique about Arkansas and what is unique about what we're talking about, that you have to lay down your contention every once in a while for the cause. And so when, whenever that took place, um, whenever they voted to build that uh, cafeteria, the man who had been so hotly against it was the first man to stand up and said, I'll give $1,000. Wow. So that is the underlying thing that I think has made the organization the truth uh, what it is, is because that uh, if, if the body wants to do that and the body feels like that's right, then I'm willing to uh, neutralize my opposition and now get on board. We're not going to continue to fight once we've decided to do this. Now we're, let's all, we're all going to do it. Sure. And so uh, that's one thing that I really admired about uh, serving as district superintendent uh, you have 11 guys on the district board, 10 now because of 10 sections. Um, but when you had that many people, these people are leaders, so they, they all have a, a feeling. They've got an opinion. Mm-hmm. And so you can have some hot disagreements in that boardroom. But when when the board meeting's over, we all shake hands, love each other, walk out there. Absolutely. And when we walk on that platform, everybody's unified because we've got a – we have got a, a cause that we're pushing forward. A and common so purpose. The common purpose yes. binds you together. Yes. Yeah. So with that, I want to underline what, uh, this, this thing about organization, the importance that you see in organization, because we have a lot of apostolic brethren that um, choose not to affiliate with particular organizations. They'd rather stay as an autonomous, autonomous church. And everyone has, of course, the right to have church. Mm-hmm. However, they, they seem fit to have church in it. But what is the value of local assemblies coming together and, and building an organization like you and I are part of the United Pentecostal Church? The first couple of things that really come to mind as far as the organization, the value of the organization, I believe, is I've watched through the years. As a matter of fact, I've promoted Chiefs for Christ. I became youth president in 1989. Easy. I was youth president Easy. in 89 <laughs> to 95. And then after that, I was youth camp coordinator. And after that, I was a Sunday school secretary, district Sunday school secretary. Then I became home missions director for three years. And then I was elected district superintendent. And I was elected district superintendent, ironically, 20 years uh, to the month from the time that I was elected district youth president, which is just, you know, it's just coincidental, I guess. But anyway, it's kind of ironic that that happened. I'm saying that to say I have seen the advantage of organization from so many different angles. Kaleidoscope of truth has come together to say, look, guys, the value of an organization is this. We can do so much more pulling our resources and drawing off of each other. And one thing that's really dangerous in this time that we're living in, it's always been dangerous, but it's even more dangerous now, is something that I like to term spiritual fatigue. If you get into uh, a time where yes. you're worn out yes. and you don't really have somebody to draw off of, of like precious faith, and you might that might not even be your 
like for lack of a better term, bosom buddy. It might not be somebody that you call every day or whatever, but you meet them at a conference. You you had a meeting that you wouldn't have seen each other if it hadn't been for an organizational meeting. Yeah. So you get together, and you know what? My She's for Christ offering will go a certain amount, but it will not reach the, the levels that 160 churches She's for Christ offering does. So it's, 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 it gives you leverage, and it gives you momentum. Our mm-hmm. youth group. You know, we, we pastor a decent church, so our youth group can do a lot of things that a smaller church's youth group can't do. So what do we do? We end up at HYC. We end up at NAYC. We end up at camps, and the camps give the opportunity and, and so valuable for our children, our, our youth, to be able to go to a meeting, look across the congregation, and see 1,100, uh, 1,200, 1,500 young people at, an, at a, a holiday youth convention and say, wow, our church isn't the only one in the state doing this or the only one in the planet doing this. Our pastor isn't the only one preaching this. And so it validates, if you will, yes, something that they have to go through year after year after year. But when they take that break, go and have a, a, a unanimous rally of people coming together where the cause is being promoted, they're being preached to, and you can, you can bring in speakers regularly and have exposure and uh, the resources – uh, that you could, you know, probably would never have as a small yes. individual church. So that's the one thing that helps. And uh, I, I know this may be a lengthy answer, but I've got a, I've got a lot of, of feeling, yes. uh, passion about this. The other, the other thing that I think is absolutely incredible is uh, maybe, and I don't like that word. It's invaluable, and maybe that's not. <laughs> but it's wonderful thing to have. Amazing is that. Um, we live in a world that is very complicated, even in ministry. Um, you have somebody that can, you know, they may be talented. They may be, have a whole lot of things on the ball that you look at and say, well, this guy would really be a good pastor. But however, everybody needs to be accountable. And so uh, an organization brings accountability. So if a church is looking for a pastor and they're kind of out there floundering, you have a much safer opportunity to get somebody to come that you're not going to get the surprises from because yes. you have a vetting system with an organization that all the years that have been put, in, put and invested into a church that brought you to where you are isn't lost just because you make a poor decision because you didn't have the resources and the ability to know who this guy is. And so I, I think that it's highly important that the church is able to draw off of the, the fellowship, and there's somebody that knows somebody that knows somebody. Um, and so that helps us to all be accountable, and so it's safe for a church to belong to an organization that that minister has to answer to. Yes. And so it helps us uh, in safety for a local congregation. Is that yeah, that makes sense. So, so not everybody's uncle needs to be the pastor. No. Yeah. No. And yes. you know what? I think that's that's well said. Not everybody's son needs to be the pastor. You know, uh, it's it's just a yeah. situation to where and 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 that's not throwing off. There are many times that there is a a a blood lineage yes. and that God is blessed. You know, but the worst thing that can happen is for. Uh, somebody to be put and expected to be in a particular position yes. simply because their name is Anderson. You know, yeah. our son uh, hasn't ever felt a call to preach. You know, well, does that make? Well, no, he's uh, helping Brother Sullivan. You know, right now and and uh, leads worship and all those kinds of things like that. 
but everybody has to have that unique calling or it's major problems. Right. So Yeah, we've certainly seen it go both ways. And yeah, I see some churches where the son took over. Uh, Alexandria obviously is, is everybody's number one go-to, as you see. Absolutely. The transition from G.A. Mangan to Anthony Mangan, and that church is one of the, probably the most, in my opinion, the most influential church in the United Pentecostal Church. Right. And then we see others, very prominent ministers, they hand it down their son. It's no longer in fellowship. Right. And, and right. you know, the, the church is fundamentally different than what it ever was. You I mean we've always right. we've seen it go both ways. Right. And you know, I mean another situation that you're seeing is, you know, obviously it's in its early stages, but well, uh, you see Brother Chantry Dean's carrying right along in his father's footsteps. Things are going good. Uh, you know, the church is continuing to grow and be blessed. you got Brother Russell Hamby's pastor in his father's church, you know, there in Rogers. So you've got a number of places where this actually works out good. And, yeah. and so it's that's the reason you can't just say, well, it's bad this way and it's good this way. It is the following, always following the will of God and a congregation being. And it's also, I think you make better decisions when you know that you have options. It's not mm-hmm. got to just be that, you know, well, this is the way it's going to be, but you have options that if this guy says, well, you know, I don't feel to pastor this church. Well, it's not like, well, we got to have you because there's nobody else. There are uh, so many more resources when you're a part of an organization. That it's you better to be in the will of God than, absolutely. than you know, just winging it. Absolutely. But you, organization brings that safety. Yes. You said something a while ago that I'm so glad you said, and it was part of your part one of that answer. Okay. You were talking about spiritual fatigue. Yeah. And um, I really, really want to dive into this with you because – you just listed a whole bunch of things that you've been a part of. And I want you to talk about prioritizing um, God's calling, uh, direction, and family. Uh, Because a lot of times we do follow the will of God and we're fully 100% invested, but we also have a family at home. And we also have our health to tend to. And we also have a local congregation. And you have all these different irons in the fire. I want you to talk about the importance of prioritizing. Okay. Um, first of all, I think that the most important thing that will ever be is your relationship with God. And so, uh, and I'm talking about personal relationship. That's not studying to find something to preach. That's not uh, where. You know, you're you're going to be on stage, so you got to have something to say. But you read the word, you pray, and you do that. Um, you know, just in just because it's your uh, desire to be closer to God. So you put that first. Now, I'm, I'm you know may cross swords with some folks, but I don't really do that just for that intention. I I really want to say that the next thing that I think is important, highly important, is your family. You need to establish a relationship with your family wife specifically, and then when when they see that mom and dad are on the same page and that they are, are servants of God, um, it gives them confidence that they're not just doing this because it's their job. Mm-hmm. So, um, it, and if you're a hypocrite, the kids are the first to know it. Yeah. Right after your wife or I, your I, husband. I want to pause real quick in your answer and ask you a a question out of what you're talking about. Okay. How long have you and your wife been married? Uh, 41 years. 41 years, and she's been by your side through all your different ministry transitions. Yes. 
I want you to speak to our younger unmarried listeners right quick and tell them the importance of following God's direction in marriage and why it's been so important to you to have that right person in your life. So glad you brought that up because uh, today I, I can sit here and tell you that there is absolutely no question in my mind but what, that I literally found the person that God had for me. And, you know, you could look back and see that I'm, I'm a, a young man up in the hills of Arkansas, and um, she is from East Arkansas and got connections to Missouri and, and all of this. And um, my dad was a factory worker, farmer, preacher. Her dad was a, uh, an insurance salesman, uh, business owner. You know, so there wasn't anything that would have brought us, you know, to cross paths except God and the church. So I have likened this uh, before, and I talked a little bit about it when, whenever the servant went to find Isaac a wife. <laughs> he began to pray and said, Lord, these people, you know, this is pretty important because I'm, I am trying to find someone that is going to help the lineage of Abraham. This is going to have to work. And so when he was going there, he began to pray, what in the world will make this in common with them? And somehow or another, the Lord inspired him that the person that you need to find is somebody that's got a well, somebody that has a well that's good enough that they're not afraid to share it with you and they're not afraid that they're going to run out. They'll even share it with, uh, with the uh, sheep that you're bringing or the, the camels that you're bringing. So in other words, I think that the most important thing that a person can do is, a matter of fact, the, first, the, the single most important decision that you'll ever make is to live for God. The second most important decision that you will ever make in life is who to live for God with. And so it is highly important that that person values and loves God more than they love you. Now, uh, because if they love God, uh, they will, it, they'll be like Joseph. They, they, whenever they're presented with things that would take them down the wrong path, they'll look and say, I can't do this against my God. And so the, their allegiance to God will also be what causes you two to stay together because it's not, just that, uh, it's not just that one thread, but a threefold cord is not easily broken. So yes. you've, got, you've got that love for each other, but that can be very vulnerable thrown in the world right now of circumstances that we live in. But if you've got God in, in the mix of that and they're devoted to God more than they're even devoted to you, then there are going to be days whenever the situation might be stressed with you, but their allegiance to God is going to keep them on the straight and narrow, even when they're having to struggle with the personality. And effect. I'm pretty sure Mama Anderson knows how to keep you in line. Oh too. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> she's, so she's, I, you know, l- l- let me ask you a question, Tony. <laughs> Excuse me. I, I'm, I'm sorry to everybody for coughing. Uh, he's he got like a head cold. Um, hypothetical situation: Has this ever happened to you in your years of ministry, where you got in the got in the vehicle? And you were, man, I just, that was one of the best messages I've ever preached. We had 10 people get the Holy Ghost. Music was on point tonight. Everybody was just where they were supposed to be. And looked over at your wife in the other seat and seen her crying. Because while you were on a spiritual high, she was experiencing a spiritual low. Mm -hmm. Or has the reverse happened where she was, you know, just everything was going good. and Everything was beautiful. And inside, you were broken. Yes, and the beauty of that is if you get the right person, God, is, God works with them in such a way. And the beauty of that is that you're most generally, almost 100% of the time, never down at the same time. Yeah. Hmm. 
because God, that is how much they are a help meet. They are there uh, for each other. You're there to support husband, love your wives, you know, and 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 so forth. And and that what happens is that you complement each other. One is up when the other one is down, and and so, I mean, it it would you'd laugh. You'd laugh if you were able to take a snapshot of our life and and see the days that I was just, oh man, come on, you got to be kidding me! I'm, and she's saying, well, you know what, baby, it's not that bad. And then, uh, you know, a few days later, it's like she's just dragging her tracks out, and somebody has gotten offended and said something, and and uh, she's gone home and cried and all that kind of stuff. And you're saying, well, baby, you know, it's all right. You know, we're, look at, and so you're using each other to begin to point out the different things that is going good. Sure. And so um, the beauty of that, of what you just said, is hardly ever, maybe once or twice, and that's the most scary times in life, if you ever both drag out the bottom at the same time. Mm-hmm. But if if you're if you just hang with it just a little bit, God somehow just works it out to where it's that cycle, yes. one's up, one's down, and... Um, it, it works out good. Life. I didn't mean to cut you off talking no, about your priorities, but I'd like for you to go back to talking about that. So we've talked a lot about the first two, which was leadership and um, family. Talk to us a little bit about health, the importance of keeping your health priority while you're oh, in ministry. Yeah. You know, um, I did have a health crisis. I'm sure a lot of people know that. Um, and I had already begun to just kind of come to grips with, you know what, I'm carrying around more weight than what I need to, and that's not, um, it, it just causes you to be wore out. And so and and so I just had determined already that um, I was going to start doing something about that. And so I'd begun, and I'd actually lost, you know, 20-something pounds or whatever when I actually had the heart attack. So I joked around with the people, you know, they didn't really think it was that funny, but I did. <laughs> and I said, um, I said, look, I lost, I lost 24 pounds and had a heart attack. I was fat all those years and never had a heart attack. I'm not sure losing weight's good for you. <laughs> and so that didn't go over too good. But anyway, I was laughing at them about it. Um, but I can, I can truthfully say that the – the worse you feel, the less inspired you are. Your inspiration, if you get inspired, you're going to preach this great sermon. Um, it, will only, it will only be as effective as God is able to bless you to be. Because you're, if you're distracted by suffering, it takes away and diminishes your ability to perform. Yeah. And so um, you're worn out. You don't feel like fellowshipping. You don't feel like being having that little extra spark whenever you're visiting with uh, visitors, you're a little bit more blasé about it. You're a little bit, I wish I could get home. I'm worn out. I don't have any energy left, all of those kinds of things like that. But it is very demanding. Even though you're not swinging a sledgehammer, you're not, you're not um, out there running a jackhammer, uh, actually the work of the Lord is very taxing. I have gone home from funerals and weddings. And absolutely just feel like I had run a marathon yeah. because of the drain on you and the stress because you're tensed up. Um, funerals and weddings are probably two of the hardest things on ministers is because that uh, they're dealing with families that are under stress. Everything that can go wrong usually goes wrong with those type of situations because a lot of times you can't really preach off of just anointing and inspiration because you don't have the rah-rah of the church body there with you helping you 
uh, create that environment, that atmosphere. So everything that you do is push. And so it wears you out emotionally, mentally, and so that when you're worn out physically, mentally, and emotionally, it will affect you spiritually. And so um, that, that is one of the major things that causes you, um, uh, I think, to really realize the importance that you know, you need to eat right. You need the you need the exercise. You need to get the air in your lungs because you know you don't think about it being spiritual, but when you're in, when you're able to breathe better, you're able to preach better. Yeah, you yeah. Know? And when you're not up there fighting for okay, got to hold it here a minute, folks, for me to get my breath back. <laughs> you know, it's I mean he's, that may sound a little carnal, but carnal, these but it's really also preachers like real. yourself that scream a lot. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm trying to tell you folks something. Yeah, you know. I, but give me a second to catch my breath before I say it. I've always I've always heard uh, my grandpa said something. He said. Uh, if the saints would ever just listen, they wouldn't have to yell so loud. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny, you know. It, but that you know, this is again. A lot of people may say it's not that spiritual, but it really is. It, it, this, these practical things. I mean, there there are people that, that we could call names of, of, of ministers that were very unhealthy. Mm-hmm. That the reach that they had in the bad health that they had, the crusades that they conducted. Imagine what more they could have done what more they could have given if they were in the physical shape where they could they could just go mm-hmm. uh, i mean i'm thinking of stories now that uh brother cole how he would go on uh, missions crusades in thailand and he was he was overweight to the point where he couldn't even fit in some of the the vehicles because they're in a sm- the, that country their vehicles very small and he couldn't even get back to go minister to the people because of his physical health and you know I can't I can't actually relate to that type of difficulty except that to just tell you that just a simple plane ride in the United States if you're not even traveling across um, the ocean but you can uh, and I have flown across the ocean um, and and it's, that's even that much worse but just to get in a plane these days and uh, the the um, the taxing ability you know uh, uh, that it is on your body of, you know, you're having to hustle to the airport, you're having to go through um, TSA screening, and then you're having to beat it to a gate. And then some of these airports... Squeeze into that tight seat. And Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and so for those pastors out there that's listening, you want Brother Anderson to come preach, get that man a first-class <laughs> ticket, will you? Well, I, re- I lost <laughs> weight so I could sit in the coach. No, I'm so. talking about your coach. You don't fit in those if anybody reclines that seat <laughs> yeah. at all. With this height, that's a little... Hey, let me tell you a funny story. One time we were going to general conference... And I was um, I was in the seat alongside my wife and Todd Day when Todd Day, uh, what six eight or whatever, playing. He used to be Arkansas Razorback guy. He was playing for the Milwaukee Bucks, and it was uh, whenever General Conference was in Wisconsin, and we were flying. And she was she was there with legs, shoulders. <laughs> it was so Just funny. so uncomfortable. You know, it was it was hilarious <laughs> that uh, they put us all in the same row in the, the three seats. Anyway, this is going to be a, kind of a rough transition, but okay. but with, with you know, you stand out in a crowd because of because of your height. For, for instance, how tall are you? I'm right at six five. Six, I was going to guess like six yeah. four, six five. Yeah. I was going to guess seven thirteen. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's but, Clarence. But this is a, a question that we asked Brother Gaddy. I asked Brother Gaddy about: Do you feel like you're being you ever you're being watched? 
as a prominent leader, not not just that you stand out in a crowd in that way, but you stand out in a crowd because of the offices that you've held. You were district superintendent. Uh, you, you've been involved in just about every leadership capacity in the state of Arkansas. You're a pastor. Brian, for our listeners who aren't United Pentecostal Church, explain to them what a superintendent is. Uh, so uh, he would certainly explain it better than I am. He he was over the all the, the United Pentecostal churches in the state of Arkansas. Uh, was was the head of the the head leader over all of the state of Arkansas, and of course, there's all kinds of different capacities that you, even through that that you serve in. Because when you're the superintendent of the district, you also serve on the general board, right. and so you have a, a voice in the board meetings at the United Pentecostal Church headquarters that determines the future of the United Pentecostal Church. So you you've been in all these different settings. In all that, because you stand out in a crowd as a leader, what can a leader do, and what have you done? to to stay above reproach well that's that's a very good point because it is the responsibility doesn't cease just because you go out of office and there uh, the influence of so many people uh, looking at you and to you and you know through through the years uh, of course when you're district superintendent you're responsible in arkansas 160 plus churches uh, 300 almost around 400 ministers now and uh, they, the sphere of influence, you know, I, so many times uh, we would get there at a, at a church and they would, I would see them and they were just kind of stirring around just like running here and there and everything. And finally you'd, somebody would say, well, the superintendent's here. And, and then that began to kind of hit you in the head that, hey, these people really, this is a big deal to them to have the superintendent here because you don't really view yourself as that way. But what you have to do, you kind of have to alert yourself that, you know, you need to be careful because um, you are a barometer to a whole lot of those people. Matter of fact, whenever you're in a service, uh, certain things are going on. I, I hope I don't, you know, disgrace anything here, but I will tell you, the Anderson family has what we talk about as being Pentecostal poker face. <laughs> and the reason for that is, is because there are going to be certain things that's going to happen and certain things are going to be said that you do not need to change your expression. And the reason why is because people are looking for any indicator yes. that you're going down yes. one one, yep. one path or the other. And Validation you, faces. Exactly. And yep. so you just try to put that blank face on and expressionless. Do not give them any indicator that they will say, you know, Brother Anderson agreed with this or Brother Anderson disagreed with this or all, all of those kinds of things like that because it does put you in that particular uh, capacity of, of influence that causes you to understand that your actions can either become a reproach and you can undermine leadership now, or you can um, you could cause, when you were superintendent, um, uh, a preacher preaching. Their eyes are on you when you stand, when you sit, when you clap, uh, when you just rub your head, <laughs> or whatever. The, all, those, all those things, you, you do feel the pressure that people are watching you, and now, um, I will say this, that the, the greatest definition of a successor is to make the predecessor a success. And so it was my responsibility whenever I became district superintendent to try to make sure that Brother Thomas's work continued on. So um, there, there's no such thing in true organization and the true kingdom of God. There's no, no such thing as I have to tear down the guy before me to make myself look good. 
because if you stand on the platform that's been built, you're so much higher. And so what has happened is, uh, if you'll if you'll look at scripture, and I, I know this is not a time to preach, but uh, it was whenever they came to David, the Bible said that they were blessing David, pointing out that Solomon had been anointed king in his stead. And we could we could embellish on that sometime if you'd like. But but what happens is it was a blessing to David to see that he had a successor, that this thing is going to go on. And so um, there, there are two pitfalls, two pitfalls. Number one is the, the number one pitfall for a guy, if you're small enough to try to say that I'm going to tear down the guy that was before me because i got to make myself look good. It's a totally delusional idea to think that that will work because it's just it has the opposite and counter effect to, to it never succeeds. And then second of all, so number one what I got to do is make my predecessor a success. And then after you're in office is to go around saying, well, if I'd have been in office, we'd have done this and all those kind of you know, you have to not say any of those things because I mean, we're all different. We all have different personalities and we all have the disposition that we operate with um, that nobody's going to do things exactly the same way. Well, it's it's going to work out. It's going to be fine. So what you have to do is be supportive even when it wasn't your idea and it wasn't a way that you would have done it. Don't let anybody read in that some type of division and some type of being a detractor from the person because the, the success that you has that you have had and that has been a part of your life is going to be predicated upon how successful the guy that followed you Maybe. So if you try to tear down the guy that follows you, or you allow any of your actions or anything that you say or anything to tear down the guy that is trying to lead the, uh, the organization, uh, uh, specifically as we're talking about a superintendent's job here, um, I want Brother Gaddy to succeed. Why? Because I had eight years of my life invested in between Brother Thomas and Brother Gaddy. So uh, if that's the case, then the more that the organization is blessed down the road, the more that I um, can enjoy the eight years that I was superintendent. What legacy did you intentionally leave for Brother Gaddy? Interesting in that, uh, I feel like I was a bridge in generations. And... Um, I, I, I felt like we were able to hand Brother Gaddy. It's, it's so interesting when I look back on it. I didn't even realize what was happening when I was in the chair. Um, but I was, as, as I mentioned, elected uh, youth president in 1989. Okay, so. Just so you know, I wasn't born yet. Oh, man. <laughs> You're not trying to make me feel old, though. Brian, were you born yet? Perhaps he continues the story. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you little whippersnappers here, listen. No, I'm joking. Um, uh, in 1989, as being elected as district youth president, gave me an opportunity. Number one, I was youth president to a group of young people, but it also put me in a position to work with pastors. Okay, time goes on. You don't really realize this is happening, guys. But the longer you get the older you get, the more you look back and say, wow, you know, this is what's been going on. So 2020 hindsight allows some of these things to be seen um, that you couldn't see while you were in the thick of it. And so now what I, what I can look back and see was this. We were in a transitional time and actually a period of time that I think was very crucial to a younger generation of ministers coming on 
So we had elders that were nervous about the younger generation. We had younger generation that weren't really sure where they stood with the elders. But I stood there as the superintendent that these elders knew because I was the district superintendent when, as, as they were pastors. So they trusted me because we'd worked together all these years. Yes. Okay. And then you've got some of these guys now that are pastoring churches were youth whenever I was youth president. So both groups could, could trust, and both groups could say, you know what, I feel like we're going in the right direction, and, and I made it a special effort to reach to both. And I wanted to bring generations together because we had to bridge the gap. We had to make sure you stay because you've got the transitions of music. You've got the transitions of ideas. You've got uh, technologies taking off, all kinds of things that's making everybody nervous during that particular period of time. And so whenever they could look at you and see that you would remain steady with doctrine, but you would at the same time be accommodating of fresh ideas and you would be able to try to blend that together and lay a platform so that when Brother Gaddy was able to step forward as the younger uh, superintendent and the next superintendent, uh, that we would have laid a foundation that now you're looking back and seeing a lot of younger pastors in positions now, and the elders uh, have been able to trust and move forward, and we still have together today, as far as an organization, uh, an organization that stands for the doctrine it still has um, so many things intact, but you're still able to see us relevant in, a, in uh, 2019 as a church that's cutting edge as well. Yes. Bishop, I want to ask something that is, um, if it's not okay, I want you to tell us, and we'll go back and cut this out, and we'll just go on. But um, I want you to talk to the people who um, have decided, whether it be on a job or whether it be on a ministry, or whether it be any any asset of life, I want you to talk about how whenever you choose to no longer serve in this role, letting that person that follows you serve that role. Can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, yes, that's. Uh, I will be brutally honest that that's probably the toughest thing you'll ever do. Is because that when you're you know some people are asking me. It's eight years, and um, I, I began to let it be known that I felt like I had finished my endeavor because um, we were coming through, you know, 2008, 2009. I was elected in 2009. Well, 2008, if you just brush the little bit of dust back, you can remember uh, George W. Bush is going out of office, uh, Barack Obama's coming in office, and you've got calamity financially. Mm-hmm. And so we ended up with, oh my goodness, you know, um, uh, that that affected everything in the country, and it affected charitable giving, it affected a lot of things like that. So we had a situation to where I didn't feel like that I should become full-time superintendent as far as, yes, you have still have all the duties that you have to do. So I remain pastor of Apostolic Faith Tabernacle. Um, and so I was pastor, senior pastor, um, lead pastor of Apostolic Faith Tabernacle, which is a decent-sized church, and at the same time taking on the responsibility of traveling, traveling around Arkansas and being the district superintendent. 
But in order for the organization to be able to still breathe and function, we had to really take some serious measures trying to make sure that financially we were uh, okay. And so uh, through the eight years, God blessed, and we were able to manage and, and work financially through those bad times, and we were, we were on top of, of the game come uh, 2017. And so I'm standing there saying, um, okay, I think it's time for me to, because I'm at such age, I don't feel like it's time for me to retire from the church pastoring. And so I'm having to make a decision here because of the, the fatigue and the priority that we we're talking about a while ago that we never did really finally get all those things yeah. pulled together there about prioritizing. But yeah. this was one of my prioritizing. So it, I guess we can loop back and run a thread through that again Yeah. Um, try to pull this together. I had a come-to-Jesus moment that you got to do one of the two. Uh, the stress being spread so thin, the church is going to suffer or the district's going to suffer. Now, which one is it? And so I said, you know what? I think the best thing for me to do is what I feel like is you go back to what you're really called to do. And so the tough decision was I really felt the Lord was leading me, and it was, it was a burden-type situation that I felt like I needed to go back and become pastor, full-time pastor of the church for another season. And so uh, in doing that, it was time for me to pass it off, uh, the district that is, off uh, into someone else's hands. I wasn't voted out. I'd, um, it may, I don't mean for it to sound arrogant, but I wasn't nervous about the vote that was coming up. It was just one of those decisions that I felt like that it was the right thing to do. Matter of fact, I had young men come up to me and say, I don't know whether to hug your neck or kick you, you know, because they said, we love you. Why in the world are you doing this? And, they, and I said, they said, everything's going so good. And I said, that's why, because everything's going so good. So it's so much better to hand off in full stride in, in a relay race. You don't want to hand off the baton in a stumble. You want to hand it off in full stride. So we have a much better situation here. For the next superintendent to hit this thing running, we've got money in the bank, we've got momentum, uh, we've got unity, we've got an opportunity here. So let's hand this thing off while things are going good, and so it doesn't have to be in a crisis that's shoving you out of office here or whatever. So that was a part of, and so with that, sitting here today, I can look back and say um, it was the right thing to do, and um, it was really tough. And just because emotionally you get so attached to all of the things, and people get attached to you and, and all of those uh, relationships. Um, but I've, I've been able to maintain a lot of good relationships across the Arkansas district as well as even in other districts as far as that's concerned, just because it raises the horizons of your ministry and, and your opportunity to affect and fellowship in a, yeah. in a larger scale. And so what happened... Um, you know, I'm my value wasn't. I tried to make sure that my value wasn't attached to me being in office, and so I I, I had to feel like that I could be valuable to you know ministers in certain situations just with experience. I'm I'm, I'm here today to support Brother Gaddy because he's my district superintendent, and and so that was. Uh, Tonight, I'm, I'm in much better shape now than I was um, November of 2018 because you're still um, you're grappling with, oh, man, 
because when you go to district uh, conference, uh, you're not the one planning anymore, you know, and it, it's just, it is a major adjustment. But you can purposely up. show up five minutes late now. Yeah. 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 And so you can, you know, you can, uh, you can do those kinds of things, but um, you're, you're doing that and saying, you know, that's, that's brother, you know, what the funny thing about it was that was brother Gaddy's deal. So I can let him, I can let him do that. Funny thing. If you've got time for a little, another little funny story here, it was uh, like the next year after um, I was uh, out as, as district superintendent, I was at general conference and I was down in the display area when the board meetings, general board meetings were going on. I missed that part of, you know, that, but it's just a part of you say, you know what, I'm, I did my time, and I'm I'm proud of and happy for the time that I got to do what I did. Um, but I'm out there messing around in the booth area, and somebody said, well, how does it feel to be out here uh, when they're in there in that board meeting? And I said, well, used to. I was in the board meeting, and they're trying to solve problems, and now I'm out here creating problems. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, it's just kind of a funny way. To, but humor heals a lot of stuff yeah, if you yeah. just kind of – uh, ch- chuckle about some of those things yeah. like that, but uh, it, it is a releasing process. But you, and sometimes you got to think because we we all are people that we get muscle memory, and we do we begin to do things just by second nature. Then you got to think, okay, I'm not superintendent, uh, so I'm not going to do this, and I'm not going to react in such a way as cause Brother Gaddy any problem, because I don't want anybody coming to me thinking that I'm going to have some type of an alternative uh, decision rather than what he would say. He's your superintendent. You've got to go to him. Yeah. So it's kind of like a this, – this thing can kind of be applied. And, and gentlemen, I'm telling you, it, it is one of the most excruciating things for a pastor to step aside uh, from, a, from a church. So this, this thing, it's applicable all the way down. When a pastor steps aside – and w- another thing uh, that is – uniquely as far as pastor's concerned is a pastor's wife is really in shock whenever a pastor says okay it's time for me to turn the reins over to somebody else and because her identity is you know she's been a pastor's wife and I'm not you know I know that we're in a culture now that is promoting lady ministers so this in no wise no wise is trying to say that men are the only one the pastors I'm just happy to giving you an example yeah um that um, when, a, when a man that is a pastor steps down from a church, well, his wife has always been a pastor's wife. Well, he may still be a preacher, but she's, she's, she can be the preacher's wife, but she's not having to make the decisions that she used to, didn't, doesn't get to make the decisions she used. And so sometimes that is the hardest part of stepping aside. So I guess I kind of integrated a couple of things yeah, in absolutely. there in that. Um, that was my experience as a as a superintendent but those things happen on a regular basis with pastors that are having to step down because of health reasons or whatever might be the case so i'm sure when you you leave uh being superintendent obviously there's as you mentioned there's things that you greatly miss but i'm sure there's some things in it you could do without ever having to go back to do again because and the reason why i say that is tony talked about the first time he met you and how it was a glorious meeting the first time i met you it was not a glorious meeting because you were you were forced into because of the situation that you were in as superintendent you had to oversee a situation that wasn't the most ideal of situations right. so in times of being a superintendent I know you probably can't give us any examples of your time as superintendent 
But in, in your times of leadership, how have you handled, because I can tell in talking with you, you're a very kind individual. How do you go about having to be the quote unquote bad guy in a situation? And, and how does that weigh on you knowing that when you, well, I guess, you know, this goes back to the superintendent thing. I'm sure that it's different than when you're a pastor because you have the next Sunday to kind of remedy that or the Sunday after, or you can go and visit them. But whenever you come into a church, you're there for the meeting and then you go home. And so the people at home, now they think, oh, well, Brother Anderson, how, do you, how does that weigh on you? And, and how do you get the courage to do what has to be done and then dealing with the consequences and then um, the pressure and the knowledge of, of people thinking something about you that's not really who you were, but you were forced into a situation that forced an opinion on them that is a wrong opinion of you? Um, I think probably what happens is, um, fortunately, as a superintendent, we'll just talk about that for, for a moment. Uh, as a superintendent, you have so many things that are coming at you that it actually is bad, but it's good. So you're not able to, to sit down and actually dwell on the last thing. You just have to, I'll, I'll, use, I'll use this for an example. I had a mother come to me, and this is in a pastoral situation, but I had a mother come to me one time, and she said, I've got this son that is, uh, you know, this has happened, and, and, and my other son is this, you know, and they are, they are against each other. How do I pick which one? And I said, well, the simplest part of that is you don't pick either. You pick what's right. And when you pick what's right, then they have to come to you realizing you didn't choose them individually. You chose what was right. right. And so they have to choose which side they're going to be on, not you picking which side you're going to be on. And so that helped me a whole lot from a, from a district superintendent's standpoint. Number one, I've got this real deep-rooted it's 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 almost it could be to a fault, but I don't think so. Um, uh, but it's very deep rooted that I am for what's right. It does not matter who you are, who you know, or where you came from, and I'm as much for the little fellow out here that's starting a home missions church that nobody knows as I am for the guy that everybody knows. But what that does to me is over time, you have to trust that God and time prove all things. You put God and time together, you'll never make a mistake because God and time prove all things. And, and so you just stick with what's right. And when in the darkest hour of your life, you can't look at, well, this guy knows this guy and this guy's been my friend all these years. You have to separate all that out. And to be a leader, you have to make sure that you stick with principles, precepts, disciplines of yes. what's right. Because the truth is what's going to have to stand. And so by the best of your ability, when you can walk away and say, I did my best to, to work with those people in integrity. And I didn't treat them any different than I would have treated the church 100 miles away. I didn't treat them any different, and I did my best to try to make sure that they got a fair shake. That pastor got a fair shake. That minister got a fair shake. And when you do that on a consistent basis, you are removing the personality from it. 
And so it's never a good old boy system. It's never of who you know. It's what's right. And when you do that over a protracted period of time, there is integrity that comes to and trust that comes to uh, you as a leader and the organization as a church. And people say, you know what, uh, they will be fair with you. And, and so that in itself, I think, is reward enough. But when you, when you do it that way, the, the benefit of things coming at you so fast, I told him, I said, it's almost like a bop machine. You know, I don't know if you've ever heard of that little bop game where it just pops up and you've got the little bop thing that you knock it down. I said, Yeah, the whack-a-mole. Yeah. So I said, there's times, that, there's times that you can't pick what you're going to do next. I'm just having to take what's hitting me in the face right now. You know? And so what happens is there's and, – and it all, it's, it's, like, it's like church. If one person goes in the hospital with kidney stones, you'll probably get another couple of calls. It's kind of – they come in threes. You know? And so you got a crisis, then you'll have another crisis and another crisis. And same thing happens with a district as well. So you've got things coming at you that you, by the grace of God, you have to move on to something else. And so you can't really dwell on that a lot. And so the beauty of that is you're leaving that in the hands of God that you did the best with it that you possibly could. And then a year, six months down the road, somebody's coming around and said, man, I didn't understand that when it happened, but now I understand. Thank you so much for standing for what was right in that deal. And I was totally on the other side of the aisle whenever you had to make that call, but now it makes sense to me. Thank you so much. And those then become the rewarding days that people begin to understand. And so... You have to have the anchor point of integrity and truth. And as long as you stay with the integrity and the truth, then it will all make its circle, and God proves it right. And in time, then, good-hearted people will see the light and say, you know what, I didn't, I didn't care for you then, but I love you to death now. I would like to get to know you on a little deeper level here. And... Um, I want to ask you a very hard question. Okay. What's the biggest challenge that you've ever faced in leadership? Um, I think probably what we, what we talked about a while ago is the prioritizing, the balance. And because it's very easy to get consumed yes. on one or the other. And, and so – you have to understand that life is multifaceted, and you can't just take one or the other and go with it, because um, if you get imbalanced, uh, then then people begin to see that, and you um, you can't walk across the floor without balance. So, I think keeping balance in your life is the most important thing. Like you were talking a while ago, and like we covered. Um, in in that discussion, whenever we were talking about prioritizing, it's God, it's family, it's church, and and going down the list of the priorities um, and and making sure that you don't that you have a little of all of it. I I really feel like, and not to weird anybody out, but obviously I've told them I said if your preacher, if God doesn't speak to a preacher, well then who does He speak to? But um, I really felt like the Lord impressed upon me. You remember Philip, um, Philip that preached to the Ethiopian eunuch, um, and then you find in the later book of Acts that Paul went by Philip's house, the evangelist, um, and it says one of the seven, 
It's easy to fly through that and not realize that Philip was chosen in Acts chapter 6, I believe it is, as one of the deacons. Well, he was a servant long before he was an evangelist. So when you get to Acts, you know, latter part of Acts, you find out it says he has four daughters that prophesies. So there was a balance then. Philip knew how to serve, and then Philip knew how to preach because and be used in very supernatural ways, but he saved his family. And so uh, when, when I saw that, the Lord really impressed upon me not too awfully long ago that Philip did not save his daughters by his preaching. He saved his daughters by his serving. And so the more that people realized and knew that he was sincere and right, he didn't have to have be a star in one of the areas. He was an overall man in every aspect. So I think the biggest challenge is you have to – I've enjoyed sports all my life. You know, I played softball. And we were laughing about that recently, but I, I played softball. I played basketball. I love golf. Um, so I, I love, you know, those kinds of things as well. But you can't spend all your life just playing sports. I had to spend time with my kids. And so one of the relationships, you know, my wife, 41 years of marriage, then you've got your children that today, you know, they're, my kids are my best friends, you know, and they're still living for God and, and working. In, and, and that's not to say that there's some great parents that whose children aren't living for God. I'm just a very blessed man. But I am saying that it was on purpose that I got out in the backyard and played ball with our son whenever I had a church that I was trying to pastor to. And I was trying to be youth president and all those kinds of things. So I think the toughest part of wearing all these hats is keeping the balance and don't throw away anything trying to salvage one thing. I had a, a pastor friend of Brian and I's. He texted us. Uh, we told him that we were speaking with you today. And um, Pastor Tony McCall in Lake City, yeah. good friend of ours. Yeah, great um, guy. He wanted me to ask you a question. Okay. And for someone who has their priorities correct and someone who is trying to walk a balanced life, what do you say to the pastors out there that are stressed out and dealing with burnout? Not that he is, because mm-hmm. yeah, I, I don't want to speak for him. No. But what do you say to people that are, are at that stress level? Um, wow. Thank you for opening this door, because I've <laughs> had this on my mind here before. Um. In, in the greatest, most stressful times of my life, there are people who are encouragers, that, that they're your friends. You know them. You know the person that you can lean on better than anybody else. And there are other people who are kind of negative and detractors in your life. Spend more time around the people who are encouragers. Soak up them slapping you on the back and talking good to you. And let that cultivate a focus. And here's, here's where it really gets interesting. I feel like I came up with a concept many years ago that um, has helped me through the years. And this is an illustration that I will take to my grave. But I try to use it to help people uh, in, in different, different situations. But as, as a child, I remember seeing them um, pop popcorn in a, an old pan or an iron skillet. 
they would put popcorn in the pan and just put a lid down over the top of it. And the popcorn would, would start popping and it would raise the lid up and spill over the sides and all that kind of stuff like that just, just in, a, in a pan there. Then later we progressed and we got actually got electricity and uh, so later they progressed with popcorn poppers and you would have an electric popper and then we ended up with uh, you know they do it commercially you go into a car lot or whatever something bank maybe and they're uh, popping popcorn and now they've even got it where you can throw it in a microwave and um, you can pop popcorn in a bag in a, in a microwave but all the way through, in whether it was in a skillet, whether it was in an electric popper, whether it was in um, microwave or the big commercial poppers, you will always have a few hard tacks in the bottom that doesn't pop. Now, they probably aren't but about 1% or 2% of the whole bag. Now, I have gotten frustrated before and said, you know what? We want 100% of this popcorn to pop. So what we're going to do is we're going to leave this popcorn in the microwave. We're going to leave it in the skillet, and we're just going to keep popping until we force all of it to pop. But you burn the other. All you do is ruin a good batch of popcorn. Yeah. And if you get focused on the 1% or 2%, that's never going to pop. Only thing you do is destroy the 98%. That's pretty powerful. And you cannot be consumed. I kind of feel the Holy Ghost in here about right now. You cannot get so consumed with the 2% that you destroy the 98% that God's trying to do for you. Focus on the 98% and enjoy a good bag of popcorn. Because I did a little research. It consumed me so much that I wanted everything to pop. I did a little bit of research. You know why popcorn doesn't pop? It has no moisture in the heart. It is an exercise of futility that you spend all your time trying to make the 2% productive. We raised more money in Shoes for Christ whenever I quit talking about the guys that wouldn't give and promoted the guys that did. If you will preach for, you have spend very little time preaching against. Mm. When you get people going forward and in the positive momentum of believing and doing right because they've been challenged and led to do right, you don't have to go around a lot of times trying to beat people's brains out because they're resisting. If they're chosen to resist, they just resist. Take care of the ones who are responding, and you will find a lot less fatigue and a whole lot more joy. How much sooner in your ministry do you wish you had learned that lesson? You know, I probably 20 years earlier, it took me probably 20 years to get a grasp on it. Man, I, I've got... I, I, I was I was gonna ask, uh, what were three things you wish that you had you hadn't have done? I, I want to change that. I want to ask you, what are three things that you wish you had done sooner? One of those things that I wish I had done sooner would have been being able to just concentrate and nourish and cultivate the plants that would grow and spend more time with the people that would respond 
instead of just consuming so much energy and time with people who were always just detracting and always looking for a reason to fuss and a reason to, you know, and, and I'm not saying you ever throw anybody away, but the environment, the environment's important. I, I ran across this, and I'm not trying to, uh, sure, I just get run across these inspirations here, guys, and I know you have to try to work with this the best you can, but. Time is not our restraint. Okay. I'm glad you said that because that works good for this. But Oh, my word, guys. You're going to have to forgive me. I'm over here in tears right now. <laughs> but I, I ran across this deal. There was there's a, there's a website that it doesn't even make sense that I ran across this at this particular website because somebody gave me a website years ago called Food Matters. And um, I was reading in this website, and I ran across this guy who was a scientist and researcher, and uh, he was in one of the major colleges, and he said what people do not understand is we were working with stem cell research way back in the 60s. And he said it's, it's a lot older than a lot of people think it was. But he said what puzzled us was we took um, stem cell and we divided it up into three trays. And when we came back later, we had actually successfully grown uh, something from that stem cell, but he said what amazed us was in one tray was muscle, in another tray was bone, and in another tray was fat. And he said we could not understand how that you could take the same stem cell and end up with three different results. And he said so we had to begin to, by the process of elimination, narrow this thing down and start backing up and try to find out why and how we ended up with three different end results. And he said, as we begin to the process of elimination, we worked our way back in the laboratory, and the only thing that had changed is we finally realized that we put one tray in one room, another tray in another room, and another tray in another room, isolating each tray. And he said, so the only thing that had changed, the same stem cell, but three different results, was environment. He said, so atmosphere is the most important thing that you can have to bring about the result. So I think the thing that finally dawned on me was you have to have a growth atmosphere. You have to have a positive environment. And people flourish off of bringing to them the positive aspects of what you're for. And they will grow in that environment. Whenever you can take the same word of God, you can take the same truth and go at it from a negative perspective. And you can be so negative that it will cause an end result that you have no desire for and you have no purpose for. And so actually the, the, the conflict comes whenever uh, you begin to create an environment of negativity and you're expecting people to be um, confrontation, you're expecting conflict, and so therefore you're preaching um, that in a conflicting way instead of. So here's the deal. I think is most important, and the thing that I was, fortunately, I was I was blessed and getting an opportunity to work with my brother Gary uh, for a number of years right before I began pastoring, and I and I saw him um, doing this and preaching this. But I can remember, I can't remember who wrote it right now, unfortunately. But there's a book called Preaching Through a Storm. H. Uh, Beecher Hicks. H. Beecher Hicks. Yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. Thank you very much. But but the concepts of that is, and I had to learn to do that. I was I was in a situation where um, it was a very personal 
uh, trial um, and legal matter from you know car accident and insurance companies you know this kind of stuff um, it went on uh, for six years and it was hanging over my head for six years but what I had to learn to do was go to the pulpit and you don't go to the pulpit taking your trouble your troubles and you don't go to the pulpit taking a particular dilemma of the people in the in the seats out there you may i mean you've got diversity of families out there and they're going through all these different things well you don't go to the pulpit aiming at those people you go to the pulpit to preach the word of god and when you go because you've got a number of sheep out there that have no clue what's going on with a particular conflict so don't take that conflict to the pulpit what i had to learn was you go feed the flock your job is to feed the flock and many times that gets resolved nobody ever knows anything about it but you don't go up and air your frustration on the rest of the people because it's actually influencing them it's actually contaminating the water for everybody else if you allow that to happen and another thing that i wish i had learned earlier would have been to delegate better and there is an art of delegation you when you delegate you don't just delegate and say, here's the job, go do it. Or you don't give them a job and then micromanage it. Somewhere in between is the art of delegation. Yeah. And you can multiply yourself through people by not just throwing them out there to a job with no job description and expecting them to get it done or putting them out there and then you're going to be looking over their shoulder every at micromanagement moment and making them answer questions and grilling them uh, and being lords over them. But you do that and then you just, you encourage them to get the job done, keep them in there, keep them encouraged. And so there's an art of delegation that is not just delegation. Bishop, uh, you just uh, opened up with us and told you what God had been dealing with you about. And I want to be transparent with you. Sure. And talk to you about what God's been dealing with me about. Sure. And uh, I'm just as guilty as the next person is why God's really dealing with me about it. But I want to know why, and I'll explain this question after I ask it. Why do men feel the need to disqualify what God has qualified? Let me explain that by saying that my grandmother has four grandchildren, me and my sister my two cousins. I am the only one, and I'm going to just prophesy it, sure. that hasn't been divorced and will not be divorced. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people disqualify people because of that divorce. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of people disqualify um, people because of their past and not letting go of that past, and it, it kind of just holds them back from the future. And... Uh, for myself, I'm just going to be as real as I can mm -hmm. with sure. you. Whenever I moved to Jonesboro, John Chance was the pastor here at this church, and he was a big reason why I came to church here is because he has such an intelligent way to uh, present Bible studies to me. Mm -hmm. And whenever he left our church and our church voted in our new pastor, Dale Runyon, mm -hmm. um, I disqualified pastor. And that was something I had to fight with mm -hmm. because I, can't, I all I had in my mind was my pastor at home, he resigned. My dad stepped into his pastor. 
John Chance, he resigns, someone else steps in as pastor. And I disqualify God bringing them to Jonesboro or bringing them to Cobden, where I'm from, because it's not what I want. Mm-hmm. How do you um, stop something like that? How do you um, not disqualify and, and let God be God and put people in places like that? Mm-hmm. Um, I do believe that that just really backs up to just trusting God that because a lot of times in our own world, the biggest deal is patience. In your patience, possess you your soul. And so if we are patient with God, like I said well while ago, God and time prove all things. Yeah. And so I have to remove myself from rendering a judgment call because it's not my position. And so I have to trust. Let me let me let me um, talk point this out to you as far as whenever the woman came to Elisha and when she came to him he said how's how's the husband all is well. How are you all is well? How's the boy all is well? And then but she is she is telling him then that her son is dead. Okay? And uh, she said, I need you to come and raise him. Elisha, in that particular context, hands his rod or his staff over to Gehazi and says, take this rod and lay it on the sun, across the sun's face and raise him. Now, I'm a little bit narrow, but I believe that that would have worked because it was the prophet's statement. That's powerful. It's going to work. Gehazi hits the road and takes off going it. And then it, the unwritten, this is just Anderson commentary here a little bit, but um, he looks around and says, what, what's up? You need to be going with Gehazi. She said, I'm not going anywhere till you come. She said, you're going to go raise the child. Mm-hmm. And so Gehazi, he's on his way. They're getting almost to the place, and here comes Gehazi back out. And his basic, and again, this is just Anderson commentary, but he comes back and he looks at Elisha and says, didn't work. It would have worked, but her faith was not in what the man of God said. It was in the man. And so she would not receive her miracle because she could not trust another man doing the job. Wow. And so she had to back up. And consequently, when Elisha went into that child, the Bible said he stretched himself upon him, got up, walked across the room several times, stretched himself upon him, got up. In other words, it wasn't just a simple fact of going in and raising him from the dead. It became a chore. And so, because that she did not accept the original plan of God by doing it through another man, she complicated by saying, it's got to be this guy or I don't accept it. Yeah. And so, what happens is we as humanity, we have these certain parameters. Uh, for instance, it was, it was Naaman. Naaman made up his mind that I've got this figured out how God's going to do it. And he resented Gehazi 
coming out and telling him to go dip seven times. He said, well, I thought that the man of God would come out and strike his hand over the place. What was it? It was a connection with the man. Now you're sending your servant out here to tell me what to do. And he almost missed his miracle. Yeah. And leprosy would have been a part, which was a type of sin, would have been a part of his life the rest of his days if he had missed accepting what that servant had said to do, which was not the same name that he came to see. Yeah. And so I think sometimes God does those particular things to make sure that we detach God's work from a specific name and a specific man. And so these are this is growth issue. This is maturity. Mm-hmm. And once we begin to understand it's the work of God, man does not do the work. God does the work through man. I'm almost embarrassed to, to tell you that it took almost – six years for me to no longer hold my current pastor responsible for what my prior pastor did. Mm -hmm. And like you just said, uh, growing and maturing, for me it was those growing pains. And if it wasn't for those growing pains, Brian and I would not be doing what we're doing today. Right. Um, A couple of years ago, Arkansas Family Camp, um, Brother Jeff Morgan preached mm-hmm. about how he was almost like Job in a sense that God nearly took everything away from him to where he almost wanted to take his own life. And then he finally heard God say, you're at a point and a place now where I can finally speak to you. Mm-hmm. And it's at those times in my life, Bishop, that mm-hmm. I don't want the, for God to have to say, are you going to listen yet? I want to make myself open to right. listen to what God has for me. And that's uh, it's embarrassing to say, you know, that it took so long for me to no longer hold the man responsible for what someone else did to me just because he holds that certain role. Yeah. Well, but what, you know, the, the positive part of that is you're still here. Absolutely. And it's a, it's, a, um, it's a maturing process. Yeah. And you reach a situation to where um, – you know, you could you could have bailed and been an immature uh, backslider out there blaming the church and blaming all of these situations that are going on. And, you know, that was created by, okay, and we're always going to have somebody to blame. There are always going to be situations that arise. But what has to happen is we have to make sure that we just stay in the church and trust God with his processing. And so... God is making us, and and again, thank you for telling me that time's not an option uh, or not a problem here. There is a difference whenever, uh, whenever you in the book of Genesis, the Bible says, God said, "Let us make man." Okay, and a lot of people have worked around with that scripture in one twenty six, saying, well, "Does that mean there's more than one God?" Well, no, there's one God, and He was not appealing to the angels to help Him. He wasn't appealing to another entity to help him. And, of course, people, you know, we can go to uh, Ephesians 1 and 11 and say, uh, well, that's God doing all things after the counsel of his own will. He's talking to himself, and I'm cool with that. But let me take it a little bit step further here. When you get down to uh, verse 27, it says that God um, created man in his own image. 
But the verse prior, he said, let us make man. In, in the image, yes. Okay. Well, here's the deal. God created man, but he was appealing to the church down through time to help him make man. So it's very possible for you to be created and not made. Because creation is working with something that doesn't exist and bringing it into existence. Making is whenever you take raw material and make something out of it. Wow. You said something a while ago about trusting the process. I firmly believe that that can be one of the hardest things to do as a Christian and as a husband and as a father, as a leader, as a worker, trusting the process. And usually we have uh, our guest give a word to our listeners. I would like to give a word to our listeners right now. Brother Anderson, I feel the Holy Ghost just like you did. But trust the process. Trust God. I know it might seem that it's really dark right now, but trust that God knows what He's doing because it's a lot easier following His will than creating your own. Absolutely. I didn't trust the process and that uh, I had preached religion one time and that I wanted to at one point be the man that I looked up to. I was sitting in a college and career class, and the pastor asked people in the college and career class, in 10 years or in 15 years or in 20 years, what do you want to be? And in my mind, my only answer was you. And when that pastor chose to resign, and here it was for me, it was not an ideal situation because you were here to facilitate seeing a new man come in. I had lost the icon of what I wanted to become, and I was embittered against everyone that was in that process because I felt like I lost my future because that was the future I wanted to become. But through that, what did that force me to do? I didn't know God before that. I knew the man of God. Yes. And I had to on my own, begin to study this word and formulate it into me because I I believe now through time that I've had the opportunity of a few years to go by. If I was in that same situation, my whole future would have been tied up in becoming what he was, but I never could have became what I am and what I still will be. And so I, I know that it's very hard in a moment to see where is God in this and where is my future in this but there is that unseen like that song we sing now even when you can't see it he's mm-hmm. working mm-hmm. and and now looking back on my life where I'm eight nine years removed from that moment I actually have my own walk my own study my and so if people have ever heard me preach you can be a judge of how good I am or how much I know but what I am today is solely because I had to find God for myself. This whole conversation kind of culminates in that with hearing you gentlemen talk, I feel 
and I sense and know and see the growth and the maturity, that you're much more on your feet now than you would have been had you not had to go through this. And your future is much more bright because God used this to make you. You were created, but he's making you in the image because it was the heartache and the hurt and all of the things that Jesus had to go through is passed on to us. Now we're being made in his image. And we won't be quick to judge. We'll have more compassion whenever we come across people. I had to go through things in my earlier years that made me able to have compassion on young people when I was a youth president. And so if we're going to lead, brethren, the, the process has to happen to us. I wouldn't be a good painter because I hate the process. And the end result wouldn't look near as good. But it is a grinding out. It's a sanding. It's a cutting. It's a knocking. The, David picked up, brethren, smooth stones. Those rocks didn't start out there. They started out way back up on the hillside when they had jagged edges. But it was through the floods. It was through the storms that they had to tumble and roll in the stream against each other and finally knock the rough edges off because one day the master was going to need them. And when that little shepherd boy reached down, that little shepherd boy's hand reached down and picked up that smooth stone out of the brook, it had finally rendezvoused with destiny. And it had no agenda of its own. It was just going to go where it was sent, to the mark, to knock that giant in the head mm. and destroy him. God's got a purpose and God's got a plan. And we don't understand the heartache, the hurt, the pain. And it's usually jostling against our brethren. It's usually tumbling against each other. You have to stay in the brook to become smooth. There's purpose in the pain. There's purpose in the pain. And one day, when you've got all the ragged edges off of you, you won't be catching your own drag in the wind, but you can fly through the air without picking up your own drag and pulling you off course. But you'll find the mark and the target because you're smooth then. Mark, John Mark, should have been destroyed because of the hurt that he received from the Apostle Paul. He went with them on a missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas, and he should have been destroyed because he turned and went back. Immaturity, that's all it was. But in the immaturity, later on he decides, I'm going to take another hitch at this. So Barnabas and Paul are going back to visit the churches they started. They're getting ready to take this missionary trip again. And Barnabas shows up with Mark. And Paul said, what are you doing with that brat? And he said, he's going to go with us. He said, no, he's not going with us. I had enough of him last trip. And the contention became so sharp between Paul and Barnabas over John Mark that they parted ways. 
Paul chose Silas, and Barnabas took Mark. But can you imagine that young man knowing that? And we all talk about Paul and Silas. Yeah. Yeah. But somewhere in the background was a Barnabas and Mark. Barnabas was trying to salvage a young man mm. who had been hurt because he misunderstood leadership. I have been if he hadn't have been salvaged, we wouldn't have the gospel of Mark. Mm. You got the gospel of Mark, and the, here is the kicker, that when it's all said and done, Paul said, bring me the books, bring me the coke. And he said, would you bring Mark? It's about over for me. And I'd like to look in that young man's eyes. He's profitable to me in the ministry. I have zero doubt that um, the last 15 minutes that we've been talking is going to genuinely minister to somebody. And uh, Bishop, I uh, I really feel like um, I would like for you to pray over um, those folks that are struggling with the process. Can you do that for us? Absolutely. I'd be honored to. Lord, I thank you for what I feel right now. I thank you that you yes, have moved God. in this room, and I know beyond the shadow of a doubt that there are going to be people that's going to listen to this podcast that are hanging in the balance in the valley of decision, and the only thing they can see are people with skin on, the people that have dis. Dis, uh, discourage them, people that have dropped the ball and people that have acted in a way they they just don't understand. And, and Lord, their spiritual future literally hangs in the balance because that they're looking at people that they have looked up to, but now today there's hurt and there's pain and there's blood and they don't understand. They're jostling against another one in the branch and don't know what their future is. But Lord... I'm asking you right now to give them faith and give them peace and quiet their spirit and remind them to stay in the church, that this is a part of the process to bring them to a place to where they will be useful in the kingdom and that someday they are going to find themselves soaring through the air to hit the mark that you have had in mind all along. Lord, Jeremiah screams it to us tonight. I know the thoughts I have toward thee, and that is to give an expected end. You will help them to arrive at their destiny. Jesus. You will help them and turn their test into a testimony. You will cause the curse to become their blessing. If they will stay there with it, the finished product will be that you said in your word, all the way over in the book of First John, chapter 3, verse 2, I believe it is, when you spoke and said, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, but it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he doth appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. God, that is what we're asking for all of these hearts that are reaching for you today. Yes, God. Help us in this end time to hold fast and to stay with the truth, and we will finish with great victory in this glorious church. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I, we were 
told to ask you, and I don't, I don't know if this is the most appropriate way to ask it, but uh, all we were asked to ask you is why is it that God tolerates tolerates saints that have bad attitudes because of bad leaders in their life? Um, I, I I honestly believe that you're saying that when they have less than the, the less than the um, the leader that yeah if they have a bad leader I, I think I think the context they were asking was when they come to your church yeah and they maybe maybe not just what God but but you want how do you tolerate the attitude of a saint that comes in that has been wounded because okay. of prior leadership you know what that's interesting you'd ask that question because in uh, many years ago, I was pastoring a church before I pastored the one that I'm at now, and um, there was um, there was some immorality that had happened, da 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 da, some stuff that had had gone on and caused people to backslide, and legitimate issues, gentlemen, with with leadership. Now, I, I hate it that I'm not trying to be a politician and give long answers, you know, here, but, but these are just things that are all connected, okay? So I'm going to try to get back to that by giving you something that is amazing to me, and that is Hannah, whenever she came to the temple, Eli is up there. She's weeping. She's left the festivities of a sacrifice and the big meal with her husband and all of that to come and intercede because she doesn't have a child. Eli steps up. Well, his sons are absolute, you know, they're, they're perverted, and they got all kinds of issues going on, and, and anything that you could look at is nothing that represents the kingdom of God and God's righteousness to you. Well, <laughs> Hannah's there praying, and while she's, she's there praying, she's under such a burden of intercession that Eli steps up, and he says, what's wrong with you? When are you going to put away the... Um, the alcohol and you know, you know why are you drinking and all this kind of stuff and uh, she uh, she begins to try to get him to understand oh look my lord this is not because I'm drunk this is sorrow of heart he was so disconnected that he was actually accusing her of being drunk whenever yeah. she was actually just under the burden right. of intercession now Fast forward a little while. She has to come back and bring that little boy and give him into the care and the custody of a man that's done everything but earn her confidence. How would you like to leave your little boy in the care of Eli? But it was God's plan and God in spite of all of that. So, so my, my point is this. God reaches down, and, and in that pastorate, I asked God. I, I would pray with people. They would pray through, and two weeks later, you couldn't find them. And then they would come back, and they would pray through, and I'd say, you know, we'd try it again. We'd had, we had a lot of issues, and so finally, I just was at my wit's end, and I asked God. I said, Lord, why are you still dealing with these people Whenever it seems like, you know, they're just making a mock. They're just coming in and praying through and back out and praying through and back. And he spoke to me these words. He said, because they were scattered by a shepherd. The mercy of God reaches far beyond. Yes, it does. 
the hurts that you receive. Yes, if it you does. will stay in the church, God will heal those wounds, but you have to stay around long enough to outlive those types of situations. So um, what happens is that those people many times are dis it's almost like a dysfunctional family. It's almost like a kid that has, has grown up in abuse. They're going to many times have the residual effects of those kinds of situations. But if you'll just continue to love them, I have seen them mature into great saints yeah. over a protracted period of time. They will get over those wounds and, the again, the environment. Eventually, they begin to take on the personality. They begin to take on the environment that they're living in. And God's mercy just keeps on reaching to them because he understands and knows that they have been hurt by what was supposed to save them. Yeah. We had a prior guest on that. We talked a little bit about church hurt. And Bishop, he has an outlook on this that I think is very fitting for our conversation tonight. A lot of people that leave the church is saying, oh, I, I've been church hurt. I will never go back to that church when in reality you are individual hurt and you're holding the church accountable for that. Exactly. And um, I, I want to encourage those who have been hurt by individuals, give God the chance that he deserves. Give the church, give God the second chance, you know, because could you imagine if all of us didn't get a second chance from God? That's exactly right. I mean, I think that God deserves our best. God deserves for you to give back. Um, we, we, have, we have been talking a lot about around our church, Pastor Preaches, the series, A Blessed Life. Mm -hmm. uh, once a year, and it took him the second time teaching it for me to really live yep. the blessed life. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like Brian was saying earlier, that through his hurt, he developed. Yep. And for me, it was through my struggle mm -hmm. I developed mm -hmm. and giving God the best right. instead of the rest. I gave him the best. Let me, let me um, interject in here with you as far as healing from the hurt giving yes. God a chance, yes. uh, and, and so on. Um, of course, we know that Joseph over in the Old Testament, um, he was done wrong by his brethren, sold into Egyptian bondage. Yeah. But it was a process of getting him where he needed to be because he's going to be governor of, of Purpose Egypt. in your pain. Purpose in your pain. Yeah. And so he's, when, he, when he, he's over there, eventually Pharaoh gives him a wife, which is a type of Christ, a Gentile bride. Okay. And so Asenath, and she has two babies. First one is called Manasseh. Yeah. Well, Manasseh means forgetting. The second child is Ephraim, which is fruitful, which means he said, I have forgotten. God has let me forget all my father's house. Yeah. So he forgot the pain that he had endured in his father's house, which means that as soon as you can forget your past, you've got a fruitful son that's about to be born. Yeah. And you never move to fruitfulness until you can have your Manasseh to forget. But Manasseh, when you get over into the, um, the crossing over to Jordan, you find out that Manasseh was split. And we've preached a lot of negative sermons about Manasseh, but I preached my last one about the negative sermon about Manasseh being a half-tribe on one side of Jordan and a half-tribe on the other side. Because the Lord spoke to me and said, I need Manasseh on both sides of the river. 
we preach to the sinner, you've got to forget your past. But you also have to preach to the saint, mm -hmm. you've got to forget your hurts. We had lunch today with somebody, and we were talking about cliches, so I'm going to tell a cliche right now. There's a reason you don't walk backwards. Right. You walk forward. That's where your eyes and that's where your vision is aligned to. That's right. And one of the hardest things for even myself was just forgetting your past and hope for and build for right. and live for right. a better future, live on purpose. That's right. I mean, that was that's just powerful. Brother Anderson, words cannot express what tonight has meant to me. And I'm going to speak for Brian because he's shaking his head in confirmation. What you have meant, <laughs> he's shaking his head, no, no. What, what tonight has meant to the both of us. We've laughed and we've cried. Uh, but most of all, we've been ministered to. Thank you so much for doing that to us and for us. We like to end our podcast with two different segments. The first one is giving us a recommended reading. What are you reading right now that's really impacting you? Um, actually, there are, there's a couple of, of books that I've, I've actually finished up. One that it's been quite a while since I've been actually in this particular book, but it's one that I really feel that is something that is important for all of us in, in this context for sure. It's just one that's really been on my mind a lot lately. So it hadn't been a recent read, but it's, um, I believe it's John Maxwell actually wrote the book, but it's Failing Forward. Failing Forward teaches you that there is no such thing as failure if you learn from it. And you learn so much more from your failure mm. than you do your successes. Because you can breeze through and you just take one success after another. And that's all you, you're just after, you're, you're pursuing. But failure makes you analyze what you did wrong. So failure will make you move forward in a way that you thought to you, it was backward or just down. As long as you've learned from it. As long as you have learned from it, you have advanced for your future. And so failing forward is something that I highly recommend. Failing forward. The second segment we like to end every podcast with is we like to open up the floor for you. Anything that we might not have asked, maybe we've asked and you didn't really go into it in the depth that you would like for you to, or something that God's been dealing with you, something that's been weighing on your heart. Uh, like, for instance, for me, it was the qualifications. Uh, speak freely to our listeners for the next couple of minutes. What has God been dealing with you, Pastor? And, and you can just preach. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Um, no problem with that. Well, one of, one of the things that has been really – there are a couple of things that's actually um, – going on with me in the last, oh, I don't know, for a while. Um, one of those is that I'm, I'm still preaching it periodically, I just feel, to because it's such a profound, to me, understanding that the Bible says it like this in, uh, I think it's Deuteronomy chapter 1, I believe it is, around verse 30 or so. Moses, obviously, is doing the summary book of Deuteronomy. And he says this, he said that God um, is going to do for you like he did for you in Egypt. In other words, he's about to die, but he's telling them. And this is what he says. He says to them that, that God went before you to search out where you would pitch your tents, or in other words, where you would place your tents. Mm -hmm. That's where God's going to be. So, which meant this, 
with all the resources that God has for you and all the resources that God has at his disposal, there are some things he doesn't delegate. One of them is he doesn't delegate wiping the tears from your eyes when you get to heaven. God shall wipe away all tears, which means he personally is going to wipe away all the tears and the hurts. I've never thought of that. So intimate time, too. All the millions of angels that he could dispatch and say, why don't you go get Tony's tears there for him? Why don't you go get Brian's tears, all them hurt? No, personally, the nail scarred hand itself wow. is going to brush across your cheek to say, I'm removing every pain, every tear from the past. I'm not delegating that. I'm taking it personal. And when they were going across the wilderness, he did not send an angel to scout out the land. They didn't send some approved guy. Your Bible says that God went before Israel to pick the place that they would pitch their tent every time they moved, which means you're never going anywhere that God hadn't already scouted out for you. So quit kicking and being frustrated. It's a part of the journey. God's taking you there on purpose. And I am totally convinced, guys, we can survive anything if we know there's purpose in it. It's when the devil convinces you that there is no purpose in what I'm going through right now that you give up. But if you will take that and know that your journey. Think about this with me. Where were, Where was Israel, where was Israel, the children of Israel, whenever they went to Egypt? They were in Canaan. So God took them from Canaan to Egypt to bring them to Canaan. They should have known the journey. The journey was what it took to make them able to possess mm. They were living in a land they couldn't possess. They left their 70 people and came back 3 million. So he took them to Egypt to make them. So your journey is what's making you able to possess the land that you otherwise would just live in. Mm. Now, you're not wasting time while you're in Egypt. You think it's all wasted because you're, you're doing developing. nothing. You're doing you're nothing but building bricks mm -hmm. for Pharaoh to build Egypt. Yes. But God moved a bunch of Canaanites in there. Whenever, whenever Israel was there, all they had were tents and a grown-up field. It wasn't settled. But while they were in Egypt making bricks for Pharaoh, they weren't losing ground because God made the Canaanites develop the land, build cities, build houses, and get it ready for Israel to live in. Hmm. So you don't lose time when you're taking the journey that God lays before you to develop you. Because when you get ready to come back and possess the land, he will have made the Canaanites build a place for you to live in. Because yeah. when you live in cities you didn't build, houses you didn't build, and in cities you didn't fence. Be careful that you forget God. So that's telling me that he had the Canaanites working for Israel while Israel was in Egypt being developed to come back and possess the land. 
So be not Trust. weary in well-doing. Trust. Trust him. For in due season ye shall reap if ye faint not. Mm. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. Yeah. And you don't lose your future working on somebody else's future. No. If you will do the will of God, God will make sure that you do not lose any time or any effort. He will reward you, and he will make it up to you. And you'll step into almost a time lapse to receive because he's that much of a miraculous God. Hmm. All I know to say is this has been the Crucial Conversation. Mm -hmm.